Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Besides celebrating the Protestant Reformation next Sunday, Reformation Sunday, you would notice by the date, October 31st, that it's also the observance of Halloween, a day widely known for tricks and treats, all against the backdrop of acknowledging and playfully confronting our universal fear of death. Especially around this time of year, as some dress in costumes, I won't ask for a show of hands, one of the more recent cultural fascinations and popular costumes has been zombies. From television shows to movies to novels, zombies have become the monsters of the moment. And just in case these fictional creatures are not your thing, zombies are human beings who have died that somehow have become reanimated. And yet zombies aren't alive. But then again, they are not lifeless. Hence, zombies, these animated corpses, have often been labeled as the living or the walking dead. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world could this possibly have to do with today's message? I'm really glad you asked. As we return to the book of Revelation and the seven letters written by Jesus to specific local churches in the first century AD, as we return to these messages that speak not only to each of them, but also beyond their particular situation and time to all churches in all periods of history, we come to the shortest of those seven letters where Jesus will essentially describe a church in a place called Sardis in this very way. Zombie-like, seemingly alive, but pretty much dead. So, let's huddle close together and hear something of a scary story. A frightening account of how the body of Christ can end up as little more than an animated corpse. Let us hear a prophetic word for all churches so that we can avoid becoming, without realizing it, the living or walking dead. Revelation chapter 3, follow along in your Bible or follow along on the screen. It reads, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished. In the sight of my God, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, 
About 15, 50 miles inland from the Aegean Sea was the ancient city of Sardis. And long before it came under Roman rule, going as far back as the biblical time of the judges, Sardis was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, a realm that stretched all across Asia Minor. Sitting at the crossroad of five major trade routes, Sardis was acclaimed throughout the then-known world as a wealthy, busy center of traffic and trade. And part of Sardis' claim to fame was being the most well-protected of all the cities in that region. Now, to understand this, a typical ancient city was almost always built around a single mountain known as the Acropolis. And on top of the Acropolis, one would then find the most important buildings and city centers that needed protection. By situating the heart of the city on a mountain, one forced their enemy to both literally and metaphorically fight an uphill battle. The thing about the city of Sardis, however, the distinctive thing about the city of Sardis was it was uniquely built around two mountains. Situated on a 1,500-foot-high plateau with perpendicular and therefore almost unscalable rock walls on three sides, there was only one major access route into Sardis, a steep ascent on the remaining south wall that was easily guarded. Now, despite this claim to fame, by the time Sardis became part of the Roman Empire, the city, in fact, only possessed a hint of her former greatness. Based upon an earthquake in AD 17, as well as just simply the march of progress, this diminished the long-standing prestige and significance of Sardis. The high plateau on which the city was built found itself too small. It actually became a liability, too inaccessible for housing an expanding governmental center under the Roman Empire. And so over time, much of the population relocated to the plain below Sardis that came to house the authority and power and prestige of Rome, a city, in fact, we looked at two weeks ago, the city of Pergamum. Now, as for the church in Sardis, all we have to go on is what Jesus describes in this letter. There is no biblical account of when or how or by whom the church was established. But however this community came into being, this we know. This church, somewhere along the way, had acquired the reputation of being a lively congregation. The word on the street in Sardis was, that's a church that's alive. By every appearance, by every appearance, this community gave the indication of health and vitality. You'll notice in this letter, I don't know if you caught it, there's actually no identification of, of opposition or persecution being brought against this church. There's no talk in this letter of them having to wrestle with the presence of, of a Balaam-like person or a Jezebel type of figure. There's no mention of this community being plagued with idolatry or false teaching. Nothing, nothing seems to be wrong with the church in Sardis. And yet, everything is wrong. For all that glitters is not gold. Appearances are deceiving. Because despite what everyone else perceives, the way Jesus sees it, the church in Sardis has flatlined. In what is one of his harshest criticisms in these seven letters, Jesus says of the church in Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Something that stands out also about this letter from the other seven is the fact that Jesus offers no affirmation of this church whatsoever. I mean, do you remember typically in his message to each church, 
Jesus begins by identifying and commending a particular strength of that community before then moving on to raise a concern, to point out a needed growth area. However, in this letter, all the fellowship in Sardis has going for it is a good reputation in the neighborhood as an active, flourishing, and successful church. But even that, Jesus declares, is without basis or merit. The only possible compliment Jesus gives to the fellowship in Sardis is that of knowing their deeds, of acknowledging this community is a beehive of activity with something always going on. But what sounds like a compliment is really part of Jesus' critique of the church in Sardis because despite all their activity, Jesus goes on to insist their deeds are not even what they seem. He says, for I have found your deeds incomplete, unfinished in the sight of God. Before we unpack the particular problem of the church in Sardis, I want to be sure we notice how often Jesus keeps bringing up in these letters the deeds of these various churches. What they as a community are doing or not doing. I bring this up, the fact that Jesus keeps emphasizing deeds, because in the church, as an extreme reaction to legalism, there has often been a tendency, especially within the Protestant church, you'll hear a lot about this next Sunday, there's been a tendency within the Protestant church to de-emphasize or even negate the role of good works in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it's been drummed into many Christians that because we are saved by grace and faith alone, nothing we do, nothing we do, our deeds, our work don't matter. And while we are saved by grace and faith in Christ alone, amen, hallelujah, it is a flawed understanding of our relationship with Christ to then say that our deeds, our work, do not matter. Because again, to be clear why the heart of the gospel is, the heart of the gospel is we cannot and we do not deserve, we don't earn, we don't merit God's forgiveness, God's healing, God's salvation. We don't earn any of it by our good works. Our good works still matter to God. Jesus saves us by grace, yes indeed, but Jesus does not save us so we can sit around and profess our belief in God and how God saves people. Jesus saves us by grace so that we can follow him, so that we can serve God by serving others, by extending the love and the grace he gives to us. While we are not saved by our works, what we do our salvation must always be accompanied by our good works because that is what we were created for. Because that is what we are saved for. Because our work reveals not only what we truly believe. Talk is cheap. We could say we believe a lot of things. But our work reveals what we truly believe. But more importantly, who or what we ultimately follow. And that's why we witness in these letters Jesus addressing the deeds, the work of each church as the key indicator of not only their professed belief in him, but as whether or not out of the grace God has given them, they are actually following him. So relating this back to the church in Sardis, the issue isn't that this community of Christians isn't doing anything. Again, this is a church with a reputation for doing lots of things. 
The problem is everything they are doing has nothing really to do with Jesus. Has nothing to do with the will and work of Christ. Their deeds, their works were incomplete in the sense that while whatever the church in Sardis was doing may have had the label of Christianity slapped on it, none of it was pointing others to Christ. None of it was advancing the kingdom of God. None of it was sharing the gospel. In other words, the church in Sardis was just keeping up appearances, claiming the name of Christ, but upon closer inspection, looking nothing like Jesus. Perpetually busy, so as to give the impression of being vibrant, but not animated at all by the Spirit of Christ. And therefore, without really much of a pulse, functionally dead. And what haunts the zombie-like church in Sardis is in fact a long-standing problem that is raised throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel struggled with the very same issue of reputation over reality, of appearance over authenticity. The people of Israel knew how to look good for God, but neglected to do good out of, as a reflection of their relationship with God, their commitment to God. Israel knew how to put on a show. Israel knew how to put on a show to get caught up in all sorts of ritual activity and worship production. But time and time again, the prophets of the Lord would cry out to them like Jesus does in this letter, stating what was obvious to God, but to which everyone else remained in denial. Here's a sampling. Here's a sampling of the words of the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of God to Israel when he says, these people draw near to me with their mouths. They honor me with their lips, yet their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Or consider what God declares through the prophet Amos. Again, speaking on behalf of the Lord, I despise your festivals. I despise your worship services. Your gatherings are a stench to me. Away, away, away with the noise of your songs. Centuries later, when Jesus walked before us on the earth, in the same vein as those prophets, and with a similar indictment to the one we read in this letter, Jesus described the religious leaders of his day as being nothing more than the walking dead. When he said, you, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. The church of Sardis was a church more focused on their reputation rather than the reality of their relationship with Christ. The church of Sardis was a congregation going through the motions of religious duties instead of embodying and reflecting the way, the truth, and the life of the kingdom of God. The church in Sardis was a community that prided itself on giving the outward appearance of believing in Jesus, 
without having any internal integrity, any authentic movement or action in following Christ. And as always, these letters, these letters to these churches serve as a mirror, a mirror for reflecting upon our own health and condition as a community of faith. And what do we see? What do we see, people of grace? What do we see when we look within, first peering within ourselves as individuals, but then also look wider upon ourselves as a congregation? What do we see? Are we still living in the past, living off the reputation of our former glory, while slowly becoming nothing more than a vacant reminder of better days? Are we living for the kingdom of God in this present moment? Seeking to follow Jesus, pointing to and sharing Christ where Jesus is moving and working in our world today? Is all our activity together? What we're doing? Is it nothing more than a social club? Is it nothing more than a social club? A singular effort to try to maintain what we have to protect the institution of grace? Or are we aiming to continue to grow, to mature in our identity and calling together in Christ? Are we willing? Are we willing to going beyond being a friendly and welcoming church? And this is a friendly and welcoming church. Are we willing to go beyond being a friendly and welcoming church to a community that dares to take our hospitality, to take that hospitality and not build it and they will come, but to go out with that hospitality into the neighborhood, to love and serve those who may not show up on Sunday, who may never become a part of grace. Are we striving to add members or are we seeking to recruit missionaries? Are we content to attract consumers? Or are we committed to developing disciples of Jesus Christ? Are we, and this is a very reflective message, I'm not giving answers. I'm just asking questions, and I'm asking questions of myself. I'm asking questions as your pastor, but I'm asking questions of you as individuals, and I'm asking questions of us as a community together. Beloved, are we? As individuals, are we as a community coasting when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ? Are you coasting? Because there's only one direction a person can coast. And you can't coast uphill. You can only coast downhill. In a healthy relationship, pardon me for saying so, in a healthy relationship, there is no coasting. Because once we stop abiding in and following Christ, once we stop, our relationship with Jesus stops growing. And when we cease to grow in our relationship with Jesus, we stop living and we start dying. When we choose to no longer live by the spirit of Christ, we become what we were before Jesus came into our lives and animated 
but ultimately lifeless corpse. By all external appearances, by all measures of worldly reputation and success, we may look alive and kicking, but the truth will still remain. We're just another zombie. We're just another dead man walking. And this is because our lives are not our own. We don't bring ourselves into this world, and despite how we try to outrun our mortality, we can't avoid one day coming to the end of the line. And Jesus' warning to the church in Sardis is applicable to us all. In response to those who are content to live by appearances, to put on the air of belonging to him, but not actually functionally following him, Jesus cautions that he will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Christ reminds us that our lives are not in our hands, but in his hands. Christ reminds us that our lives are not under our control, but his control. That one day, not in our timing, but in his, he will take back what he has given to us. He will take back our life. He will take back our salvation. And if we have chosen to live as those who are dead, then death will be our future. You get back what you have done with what Christ has given you. I've given you life and salvation. Lord, all I've done is act like I'm dead. Then dead you shall be. I have given you life and salvation. And I have lived I have sought to live by your grace. I have sought to live for your glory. I have lived not by my own strength, but by yours. If we have chosen to live for Christ, then death will become in that moment little more than a transition. A transition from this temporary life into the fullness of everlasting life with Jesus. If we're searching for some good news in the midst of the horror story of this letter, you just heard it. We discover it, as always, in the gospel, in the enduring hope we have that we are offered in Christ. Because think about this letter. As difficult as it is to read, as scary as it is, the thing about this letter is the gospel's all over it. Because here it is. If death were the final word for the church in Sardis, if death were the final word, if it was game over, then Jesus would have nothing else to say. Jesus would have nothing else to say. But while talk may be cheap for us, talk is never cheap with Christ. Beloved, we worship a God who creates by speaking. And despite whatever we do or don't do, thanks to the lingering, ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit, there is always a sign of life, even when the church is in critical condition. And so Jesus, you'll notice, doesn't stop speaking. Jesus issues a series of commands to the church in Sardis. But again, Jesus isn't barking out a bunch of orders. Jesus isn't barking out a bunch of orders for us to pull ourselves together. Pull yourself together. Get it together. Get it together by your own will and strength. Stop slacking. No. Out of the power, the same power of God that raised him from the dead... Jesus directs us to live out of the gospel, 
to be resurrected anew by the possibility and promises of grace. These commands are an expression of grace. They're not a to-do list. They're a can-do list. There can be. This is who we can become because of what God continues to put before us, to offer us. And so the very first command Jesus gives, which is the most important, is wake up. Wake up. And with this, this initial instruction, it becomes clear that the church in Sardis isn't so much dead as about to die in their sleep. They're mostly dead which happens to mean they're also slightly alive for those of you who like the princess bride. This is a church that isn't dead yet, but this is a church that's about to die in its sleep. So wake up. Why that command? Why that command wake up? Because here, this is fascinating. In the history of Sardis, based on the history of Sardis, Jesus' specific command, the first command, wake up, his word choice seems very intentional. It seems like it's intended to provoke some familiar associations for the Christians who lived in that city. Why do I say that? Because do you remember what I told you at the beginning of this message about how Sardis, its strategic location and layout? Do you remember what I told you about being on two mountains? Do you remember how I told you that Sardis had something of a reputation, priding itself even on being an impregnable city? The city, in fact, throughout history, was never taken by direct military assault. However, on not just one, but two separate occasions, the city of Sardis was successfully captured. In 549 BC, the ancient Persian ruler Cyrus managed to find a chink in Sardis' armor as one of his soldiers stealthily managed to scale one of the perpendicular walls of the fortress and discovered a small access hole. Once he made his way into Sardis, this climber opened the gates of the city from within and Sardis was overtaken while its citizens slept soundly. And as crazy as it seems, the very same thing happened again. In 218 BC, as the great Greek king Antiochus the Great captured Sardis pretty much the same way, again as the people of the city were fast asleep. In fact, in the poetry and wisdom of its day, Sardis became a symbol, a cautionary tale on the dangers of pride and overconfidence. Jesus is tapping into this history lesson and applying it to his church Because in fact, an even better translation of this command by Christ is not wake up. It's actually better translated, stay alert. Keep on being watchful. Meaning Jesus isn't just calling us to wake up after having fallen asleep. Jesus is calling us to stay awake. To remain vigilant and watchful. Stay awake. We fall asleep. We fall asleep without knowing it. We fall asleep without knowing it generally for one or two reasons. We fall asleep without knowing it first because we try to do everything in our own strength. We try to do everything in our own strength rather than engage our work out of first abiding and resting in Christ. And so trying to do everything in our own strength, we exhaust ourselves and we burn out. We're no longer able to keep our eyes open. And thus the practices and tools of our faith become just rote, religious chores and duties rather than the means of relational intimacy of having authentic life in Christ. Beloved, 
There is a difference between doing things for Jesus and living in and through Christ. There is a difference between doing things for Jesus and living in and through Christ. One way drains the very life out of us. Doing things for Jesus, doing things for Christ, doing things for the kingdom. It drains the very life out of us. The other, living in and through Christ, fills us with new and everlasting life. The second way we can fall asleep without knowing it is by becoming complacent, self-satisfied in our relationship. Rather than perceiving ourselves as works in progress, by the grace of God, we someday somehow convince ourselves we've arrived. We're all grown up when it comes to learning from Jesus. We're all grown up. Many of us who are listening right now, you got a lot of mileage. You got a lot of mileage of professing faith in Jesus. You got a lot of years, decades of saying you believe in Jesus Christ. Here's my question to you. For all those years of proclaiming you believe in Christ, how much mileage do you have in actually following Jesus? Let's ask ourselves, listening to the Spirit as we ask, are we a mile wide, but little more than an inch deep when it comes to our relationship with Christ? Well, we've been busy amassing lots of knowledge, loads of knowledge about Jesus. Some of you could outschool me in what you know about the Bible and what you know about Jesus. But for all that knowledge, how deeply are we experiencing and sharing the presence and power of Christ in our lives? We've been a part of a flurry of activities in the name of Jesus. Man, some of you have been busy as the day is long. Man, you've been involved in activity after activity after activity in the name of Jesus. But how much growth have we experienced? How much growth have we experienced? And I'm talking just individually, forget just corporately. How much growth have we experienced in becoming who we are in Christ, in reflecting Jesus to others? How much have you grown in who you are in Christ? How much have you grown in your sharing of Jesus and others? You see the dichotomy? You could say, I've been a Christian all my life. My life. I've been professing belief in Jesus since the day I was born, since my parents baptized me. But as far as actually growing in the character of Christ, as far as sharing Jesus with someone else, the gospel, do we think we're alive, but in reality we're dying? Have we become either exhausted or stagnant in our faith? Is this wake-up call from Jesus for you, for me, for us? Jesus goes on to tell us how to stay awake. He tells us how to stay awake. We stay awake, we remain alert and vigilant by remembering what we have received and heard. By remembering what we have received and heard. Hear this. What we choose to remember informs how we live in the present and what we think about the future. What we choose to remember informs how we live in the present and how we perceive the future. A good, healthy, right memory is essential 
to our orientation in the present, and to our perception of the future. And that's why, not just in this letter, but throughout the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, we are repeatedly encouraged to remember. It's like drilled into us over and over again. Remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. We're encouraged to remember all we've been given, all we've been given by whom and for what purpose. Because when we believe life, when we believe getting through each day is up to us, once we've convinced ourselves we've arrived, we forget where we've come from. We forget who we are, whose we are. We forget who God is. We forget how we ended up apart from God. We forget all that God has done and continues to do for us to close that divide forever. Jesus' charge for us to remember dovetails beautifully here with his additional call to hold fast and repent. You've heard that word repent a lot in these letters and another way to think of what repentance is, repentance is turning around or thinking again. Repentance is remembering what we've chosen to forget. Repentance is remembering what we've chosen to forget. What have you chosen to forget? When's the last time you asked yourself that? What have you chosen to forget? Because to repent is to keep remembering. It's to keep reorienting ourselves to our true north. To remember, to repent is to be rooted in the word of God, to be centered in the spirit, and to be moving in the direction of where Jesus is. To remember, to repent, not just in the case of emergencies, to remember to repent, not only when we've eliminated all other options, but to remember and to repent in our day-to-day -day lives, we have to hold fast, not let go of all that we've received and heard. Jesus doesn't ever, ever let go of us, beloved. Jesus doesn't ever let go of us, but we can let go of him and forget he's there. He's there with us and for us, even as we're stumbling blindly in the dark. To hold on to the gospel we've heard and the word and spirit we've received is not merely to possess it and file it away. It's not merely to possess it and file it away, but it's to cherish it. You hold on to it by cherishing it, by chewing on it, by embodying it, by reflecting it every which way you can. Not right now, because right now is a given as we're gathered for worship. But ask yourself as you go about your day-to-day -day life, think about yesterday, the day before. As you go about your day-to-day -day life, have you forgotten the gospel you've heard? What is the defining narrative that drives our lives? What is the defining story that drives your life? Is it the good news of Jesus Christ? Is the defining narrative that drives your life the story that we are much more than we ever earn or accomplish? Is the driving story of your life that we don't have to live to prove ourselves or justify our existence? Is the driving narrative of your life that we can live out of the freedom and assurance of love that is unconditional, of hope that is eternal, we can live out of the promise of a God who believes in us even when we don't believe in him. A God who gives us faith as a gift is part of the reason we're so tired. It's part of the reason we're so burned out 
is part of the reason many of us are just sleepwalking because we've forgotten. We have received the Holy Spirit, the very life of Jesus. It's the Spirit of Christ that's brought us this far. It's the Spirit of Jesus that raised us from our spiritual deadness. We are born of the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit. And we can and we must live by the Spirit. But what voice? Who? What voice? What power? What wisdom is directing and shaping our thoughts, our words, and our actions? Is it the word and spirit of the living God? Are we walking by the word and the spirit? Are we worshiping in the word and in the spirit? Are we praying in the word and through the spirit? Are we being transformed by the word and the spirit? Is the presence and power of Christ animating us, bringing forth the kingdom of God through us? Or are we still trying to please God Are we still trying to serve others? Are we still trying to satisfy ourselves through our own strength and will? If you are, you're dying. You're dying. You're dying. And that's why the other command that Jesus extends to us is strengthen. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. In other words, Christ is directing us to get back to the heart of worship. Christ is directing us to get back to abiding in the word and the spirit. Christ is directing us to live out of the grace, the strength and direction that come from the word and the spirit. Christ is directing us, follow Jesus again. Follow me. Because beloved, again, there's a difference between telling ourselves and telling others that we believe in Jesus, there's a difference between that and actually following him. Fitting Jesus into our lives is not the same thing as yielding to Christ. And I'm going to say this, and it's going to upset many of you, but there are many people in this world, likely in this room, where you believe in Jesus, but Jesus has to fit in your life. And Jesus didn't come to fit in your life. Jesus came to fit your life into his. There is a difference between fitting Jesus into our lives and yielding to Christ, abiding in Jesus and letting Jesus integrate our lives into his. The dynamic of the kind of life to which Jesus calls us, he invites us, he promises us, cannot be experienced by a perfunctory to-do list. It's realized by living in Christ, with Jesus and through the word and the Spirit. And yet, when it comes to being a part of the body of Christ, we have this tendency to view our participation in the church as paying our dues rather than growing in Christ. Whereas once we actively served while we were younger, we've retired from the ministry of the church. In our minds, We've done our part, and now it's time for other people to pull their weight. And so we simply choose to occupy a pew, to simply take a back seat and rest on what we have accomplished for the church. That's the basis of retirement, right? I mean, think about what you're basically saying. I've punched my card. I've done my time. I've earned. I've merited 
when I get up to Jesus, I'm going to be like, hey, did you look at the activity list at Grace, all the things I did? All the things I led, all the things I signed up for? Do you see all that? Huh. That's right. I did my part. We take a back seat and rest on what we've accomplished for the church. But more than often than not, that marks the beginning of a decline in one's spiritual life. Because here's something that's a radical idea. Everything that we do together, you do, we do, we don't do it for the sake of the church. We don't actually even do it for the sake of Jesus. We do it so that we can grow and mature in Christ. You think that Jesus needs you to do something? Jesus doesn't need you to do anything. Jesus invites you to do, to follow him, and to do that together through the church as the body of Christ so that you can become, so that he can work in and through you. Whatever we do in the name of the Lord is not primarily for the sake of the church. It's for our growth, individually and collectively, our maturity as the, as the church in Christ. And when this is not our motivation, when this is not our means of serving the body, when that's not the reason why we do what we do, we will falsely come to the conviction that we've arrived, that retirement is a viable option in our discipleship with Jesus. And if you're still breathing, but you're not still moving in your relationship with Christ, I hate to tell you, you may be breathing, but you're dead. Or you're on your way there. The world standard, the physical standard of somehow, I've run my course, I've done my time, I'm old, I'm done, I'm tired, or whatever, it don't play in the kingdom of God. Don't work. And if you're upset about that, don't talk to me. I didn't write the book. I didn't give the spirit. The minute we stop progressing, we stagnate. And stagnation almost always leads to regression, right? It almost always leads to regression. When we stagnate, it almost always leads to regression. What do I mean? When we stagnate, it leads to regression, and that means we lose all we have gained. We find ourselves no longer alive to the things of God. Beloved, hear the message this morning. Faithfulness is more important than appearing to be faithful. It's a humbling moment, <laughs> man, isn't it? It's a humbling moment when we realize we are not something we thought we were. It's a humbling moment when we realize we are not all that we claim to be. But such realization, such a realization need not be a cause for despair. For by the grace of God, Thanks to the gift of the Holy Spirit, there is still life in us yet. Better to be sleepy than to be dead, right? Because just as Jesus declares in Sardis, in the history of the church, there has always been a faithful remnant, a modest few who, thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit, have raised the alarm and beckoned the majority not to go gently into that good night. Who will rise among us? Who will rise among us? Who will rise among us through the power of the Holy Spirit and say to the person next to you, say to the person who isn't even here, wake up. Who will say to the person here, remember all you have heard and received. Who will say, strengthen what you have been given before you die. Who will rise? It's time to wake up, church. Let us, let us be among those who rise like Lazarus at the call of Jesus. Let us remember, 
Let us together hold fast to the gospel we have heard. Let us hold fast to the word and spirit we have received and continue to grow and mature in Christ. And let us, instead of pulling up our own sleeves and gritting our own teeth and bearing down in our own strength and power, let us instead get down on our knees as we yield and abide first and only in the presence and power of Jesus. Let us strengthen what remains by reflecting Christ to and for each other. By sharing Jesus. Sharing Jesus in word and deed in our neighborhoods. By representing the love and truth of the kingdom of God in our families, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our world. Let us stop playing dead. And instead, go forward with gratitude. With gratitude and thanksgiving that our names are written in the book of life. That our future victory in Christ is not in doubt. Let us, clothed in the white robes of our baptism, our baptism into God's mercy, forgiveness, and grace, let us go with gratitude that we are not the living or walking dead, but that ours is the glory of everlasting life as we keep following Jesus. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.